listening to the Astrophotography Podcast, brought to you by Ontario Telescope and Accessories, ontariotelescope.com, where OTA means more. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Astrophotography Podcast. My name is Steve from Ontario Telescope and Accessories, and today I have a very special guest with me. Jerry Hubble from Explore Scientific. He is a vice president of design. Uh, engineering. Engineering. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, vice it. president of engineering, and he is responsible for the PMC8 Go To system. This is a fantastic mount system. I've got two mounts that are uh, run the PMC8 system. I have a much larger Los Mandy G11 mount with a PMC8, and I have a smaller IXOS 100 with PMC8 and I tell you what for my my own experience you get you do your alignment I do plate solving but once I have a plate solved and all aligned it, the the go-to accuracy is just deadly it you tell it to go somewhere and it just goes and it's there and then I tell it go to my next target and it's there in the center of the field so Jerry welcome to the program thank you very much for taking Thanks. this time Thanks. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you about our systems and and astronomy. Uh, I appreciate your your thoughts on the uh, the PMC8 system. It really that's one of the things. Uh, as you know, we've been we've known each other for a few years now. I've I've struggled with a certain certain things on it. It just gratifies me to hear you talk about the the. Uh, the, the appointing of the system because that's really a, a major piece that I had worked on early on for the uh, alignment routines and everything and it's just great to hear that um, in terms of the operation of the mount also. Well, I, I'm, so, I'm, uh, I'm glad that our relationship now is better than <laughs> how, oh, yeah, right. how, how I was right. making I'm, it in the beginning because I, I uh, uh, it was a very new system to me and I, I, I struggled and I questioned a lot and I <laughs> and I'm sure I made you want to pull your hair out. Um, no, it was actually new to everybody. You were an early adopter, I think, and you you helped push the system to get it to where it is today. So I appreciate that. We're you know it, it's always it's always something new, you know, uh, that comes up with a brand new system. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you helped uh, come along quite a bit. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I I uh, I, I still use it um, in my own observatory. Actually, you know, I took it out. Um, and Jerry, I'll email you this picture. I took it out uh, last weekend or a weekend before uh, uh, during the new moon and, and did some imaging with it. And a month ago, was it a month ago? Yeah, a month ago, I took it out as well. And, and uh, I, I did some imaging with my IXS 100. And that was the only rig that I had because I, I wanted to have a portable light setup. And mm-hmm. um, actually, I think I loaded it up. I think I had a good... 15 pounds of equipment on it and it handled it perfectly and yes. I'll, I'll send you the uh, uh, I'll send you the um, the image but it was of the elephant trunk nebula in a wide field I had a full frame camera so I, I, I had the, the, uh, I got oh. the garnet star and I got the nebula itself and all the surrounding dust it's absolutely beautiful um, and everything was just great it went to their target and just started imaging, and the guiding was was what I needed it to be, and it, it was awesome. So, um, great, great, great oh, mount, good. great go to uh, grab and go go to system uh, for for almost any application with 
with uh, light equipment, whether it's just a DSLR and a lens, or in my case, I had a 70 millimeter scope on it at f5, um, which is pretty quick, and right, right, and, and it worked. It worked really well. So I'll, I'll send you that that uh, picture. Um, yeah, cool. There's a secret to why the the IXOS 100 handles that weight. That's because it's got the identical drivetrain that the Exos Two does. That's right, right. It's, that, that's <laughs> so really it's, inter- it's really interesting because that mount it, you know, for the price point that it's at, it's it's a belt drive, which you typically right. wouldn't you wouldn't see until unless you're paying double the amount of money for it. Um, so it, that that that's really unique to have that belt drive system um, on it. But, um, but that so, helps improve the guiding performance too. Also, it smooths out. It's a very uh, smooth uh, PE that you can easily guide out too. I think people are getting. It's amazing to me what our customers are getting with that mount uh, in terms of uh, uh, guiding performance. They're getting less than one arc second PE uh, of guiding error, mm-hmm. auto guiding error, RMS when uh, when it's really tuned up and working well. Yeah. Yeah. And for a wide field rig, you know that that uh, less than one arc second RMS that that that's that's amazing because my my pixel scale, uh, I think when I did the math, it was closer to closer to five. Yeah, I was going to say three to five is typically what you see when the with the short focal length. Yeah, and, and um, uh, wide field so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so mm-hmm. to to get down to one, you know, I, I get on the G11 without any anything fancy on it, in, uh, in terms of tuning, I regularly get a point five to point six, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, but again, the the real power there is the the go to. And the right. the accuracy of, of that go to, um, I'm not having to waste any time having to recenter targets. It just it just goes, uh, and when I want to go to my next one, it just goes and it works. So, you know, fantastic system. But what's really unique about this system, you know, I'm not sure a lot of people understand this, and I'm hoping you can talk about it a little bit more, is that this is sure. an open source pro- project. It it is the source code for the ASCOM driver is out there. And available to anyone who wants to make modifications, make their own ASCOM driver, uh, develop their own um, application. Their own application, yep. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, for control. So this opens it up to not just anim- amateur astronomy, but if, if somebody wanted to take that control system and use it for another type of motion control or write their own uh, astronomy program, they can do that because the, the source code is there in the... Um, everything you would need to do that is made available right. to the public, right? Right, so the, the system is designed, and it's in its name, PMC stands for Precision Motion Controller. It's, it's, it's a unique design. It's, uh, it's different than most other mount controllers or pretty much all other mount controllers because you don't have, I've abstracted out all the astronomy-specific stuff out of the controller. It's just like a robotic, controller so you could turn the pmc8 into a a robot arm controller or into uh, other types of robotic type control system it doesn't have to be astronomy related at all 
it can so that's the thing that the ASCOM driver source code gives you is how I translate astronomy related commands into the actual command language that's in the PMC eight. The other thing that does is it makes it easier for people to learn the PMC eight control language because instead of having a hundred to one hundred and fifty commands like these like uh, the Mead and Celestron. Uh, uh, control languages have, you know, because that's all in built into their hand controller is that is all the astronomy related stuff, all the, you know, not just the motor stuff and all that stuff is takes up like a hundred commands. Okay. To implement all those different things that the hand controller uses. Our system only has like, uh, I think it's like 16 or 18 commands that all, those are the only commands you have to learn. And they're all directly related to how the motor, how the motors are used, it has nothing to do with astronomy. So you could take the ASCOM driver front end, learn how the commands work uh, through that source code, and actually execute. And we've got a fully documented uh, programmer's reference that has all the command language documented, specifically on how to use everything. So you've got that, and you've got the source code. And you've got, uh, we've got example code. Also, we've got some four stars example code for doing calculations and how to talk to the PMC-8 also. So you got all the tools you need to write your own programs to use the PMC-8 controller like you want. It's like it completely open source. And, and you could, it, could you buy the controller on its own in motors and, adapt it to another application other than just astronomy then? Like, is that some of the people can do? That's one thing that uh, we've had. I've had discussions with Scott about that over the years because that was one of the things that I thought would be good to, to create. Uh, we, we already have a software development kit that we offer on our website that has all these all this source code and all the all the documents and everything. But one of the things I wanted to develop was a, was a hardware development kit for the PMC-8, which would include all the software development kit plus the hardware platform that's included in the iXos 100 mount. Uh, that's got a, a small control board, some motors and everything. I would consider the iXos 100 like a, a development kit for PMC-8 applications. Okay. In a way. Okay. Uh, we don't offer we don't offer the board the bare board and the motors and the cables and stuff for the motors of that right now. That's something I'm I'd like to I'd love to be able to create a STEM type of robotics kit to offer our uh, into the market to learn the PMC8 system. Okay, but until then, people can buy a mount and they can develop. Their, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, which is which is rather unique. And the mount is very affordable. I think it's very affordable, and and you get an astronomy mount at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. For, uh, as the application, as yeah, the first application. Yeah, less than five hundred dollars or less than four hundred dollars, I think, for the iXos one hundred. Um, right. And uh, um, it could be used for a variety of of applications: imaging, visual astronomy, um, and in this case, if you wanted to develop your own your own application. Right, that as a hardware kit. Think about if you, if you want to develop a um, some kind of a uh, surveying application. Okay. Yep. Think about that. Yep. Yep. So that's so, kind of cool. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, uh, Jerry, about uh, surveying, because now we get into another side of astronomy that that I don't think gets a lot of lot of uh, justice. Um, there, there is 
you know, a lot of a lot of uh, amateur astronomers out there that are, are visual astronomers uh, that will only use an eyepiece and, or they'll sketch, right? Which is which is right. great. And and, and I'm, I can't say I'm one of them. Um, I I I, uh, I I I'm an imager, um, and then so you have the other side, which is imaging, to, to, you know, to take these beautiful pictures and and which is a bit of an art as well, because everybody has their own. Um, their own representation of, of a particular target. But there's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. And I know you're big in this. You've written a couple of books as well. And that, that is the, the science side of, uh, of amateur astronomy and, and doing measurements and, you know, uh, finding exo, uh, exoplanets. Can, can you talk a little bit about right. that and the work that you do? Yeah. So that, that's really the, the bulk of, of what I'm really interested in when I, when I do my own personal observing, I have two sides. One is um, one is high is lunar stuff, which I will talk about in a little bit. But the other side is the science of uh, astrometry and photometry, mainly uh, the measurements that you can do on these images that these these great these awesome CCD and CMOS cameras that we have available to us today are are basically measurement instruments. They're very, they're very uh, precise instruments for doing brightness and position measurements. And couple, you, know, you couple that with the um, plate-solving tools we have today. I mean, I've done measurements I, I, early on. What I wanted to do when I first started getting back into this about 12, 15 years ago, I wanted to do minor planet observing and, and calculate minor planet positions do orbital calculations and that kind of stuff and I stuff sounded so amazing to me that I could do that from my backyard that that was just because that's really to me that was really science stuff and so I learned how to do that and uh, so I learned astrometry which is basically plate solving and I I was doing measurements think about this a backyard telescope can measure the position of an asteroid to with less than 0.1 arc second less than 0.1 arc second that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, and that's a, that's a real-time measurement of that, uh, that object, you know, at that damage. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Photometry, and I've, I've, over the years, I've developed some tools over the last couple of years specifically for doing high-precision photometry for exoplanet work. Um, Things I've gotten into the last three years. I learned how to do exoplanet transit measurements. I took the AABSO course on uh, from Dennis Dennis Conti mm -hmm. is the uh, section lead there at the AABSO. For he offers a course. I'm not okay. sure if he gives it anymore. I know some other people have given it, but he offers a course in exoplanet observing, and I took that course uh, over um, over three years ago now. And uh, I've been into it since then. So, so if somebody wanted to 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 do this, the, the equipment that's needed is, is no different from what they might have already if they're doing their, their own imaging. So, a telescope mount, right. CMOS or CCD uh, camera. I've got, right. I've got a secret about scientific imaging. Most a lot of people probably don't realize is that you know the imaging most people. In an astrophotographer picture imaging. That's that. So that's why 
that's why I got into it because there's well, there's two aspects of it. One, it's not quite. It's really, it's really high. I mean, if you want to be a world class imager for beautiful pictures, you've got a, you've got a tough road to hoe. You really got to learn and learn all the techniques. Now, those are the same techniques you you need. I would say ninety percent of the techniques you need for that are what you need for scientific imaging. But the difference is that you're not trying to make these beautiful pinpoint, you know, hundred hour images. Right. For doing science you're not doing that you're not stacking and stacking and stacking uh, you know tens of hours of images to get a beautiful picture that brings out all the deep detail that you want to want to see in the image you're not doing that although that's not to say those images can't be used for science they absolutely can it's just you got to be careful so one of the things that people don't realize um about science and beautiful picture imaging is science imaging is actually easier uh, in a lot of respects than it is beautiful picture imaging. And beautiful picture imaging, you have to take, you know, people take tens or hundreds of hours of images and stack them all, and you have to have pinpoint stars, and you want you want the uh, knockdown as you can. So that's a lot of effort and work. Right. Science imaging isn't like that. Science imaging, all you you take over time so it's a time series of data it's not like you're you're not integrating all the data into one image you're basically watching for changes in the image over time okay so at that point you're either taking one minute or maybe up to five minute images right uh so your equipment only has to be good enough to do that you don't have to worry about pinpoint stars spread the light of the star out over more pixels you've got more pixels that, that are doing the measurement and that's the whole key you're doing a measurement you're not okay. trying to make them look good. So the sensor, the every pixel on that image chip is a, is a separate sensor right. or separate instrument that you're calibrating, right? Okay. And so you're taking measurement of one star with multiple instruments. It's like a, you know, let's say you have five, 300 instruments measuring the same light or a piece of the light that's coming in. So it makes that measurement much better. So that's the difference between beautiful picture and 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 science image. So so are there are there software much easier? Are there software tools that that are available for to, to work with this? Like um uh like is it like free? There are free tools. There's a difference. So when you when you take the data, it's just a technique. It's a different procedure when you take for science images as you are. It's pretty much the same as a beautiful picture, but you're not doing, you're not, uh, what am I trying to say? Your quality doesn't have to be as high for science imaging. Let's okay. say, let's put it that way. Okay. There's ways to work around some things. Right. Uh, there's a technique involved with science imaging that you don't necessarily use for beautiful picture imaging. It's different. Okay. But the tools are the same at that point. When you're gathering the data, it's all the same tools that you, you have today in your beautiful picture imaging. Where the okay. difference comes in is what you do with that data you do after you get it. You still do caliber, uh, like the flats and the darks and the biases, the same okay. thing. Now, that that's becoming less and less because CMOS cameras are really becoming near-perfect cameras where you don't have these this noise sources and not quite as bad as it used to be. Right. So that's, that's always getting better, which is cool. So you still have up to that point where you have a calibration of the image. That's just all the same, regardless if it's a beautiful picture or if it's science imaging. After that, uh, PixInsight or Photoshop, 
to process your image, you're going to use analysis tools to extract the data out of the image, either position data or brightness data. Okay. okay. Once you do that, then you're also then you're going to analyze and plot that data and use it as a measurement. And that's we got tools uh, like I use Maxim DL to do the initial to do my data gathering. That's an observatory control program that does a lot of stuff. Right. Uh, but after that, um, and and all the scientific data sort of spits. You don't use, t or or when you process it later, it comes a JPEG. Right. Uh, you don't have any of that, but you have a FITS file to grab the data out. And a FITS file is like a spreadsheet. Think about a FITS file as just a spreadsheet that has all the brightness data for each pixel. And okay. then that's what you manipulate. Exoplanet analysis program that I use is called Astro Image J, okay. as in the letter J. And uh, that's that's for uh, that does light curve analysis and modeling for exoplanets. Another pro program I use to do uh, minor planet or asteroid uh, work is called Astrometrica. Okay. That program's been long. Rob wrote that uh, probably 15 years ago now, but it's an excellent program. Uh, those are the ones that. I use uh, doing this work um, on there's a couple of other projects for citizen science uh, that uh, for example uh, for work, Dr. Rob Robert Zellum of JPL in California mm -hmm. I've been working on his group um, uh, they've developed a program called exotic I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but EX, it's, it's Exoplanet Observing for, it's called uh, Exoplanet Watch. Okay. If you look up Exoplanet Watch and JPL and Exotic, you'll find the project. for This is for anyone that wants to do work in exoplanets. They can get started that way. Uh, um, AAVSO, I'm working with the AAVSO. I'm, I'm a member of the AAVSO working on the um, team for V. They've got a, a photometry tool called VFOT. It's V P H O T. Um, that's available on the AAVSO website to do light curve uh, data analysis. Also, awesome. so that's that's another. There's a lot of. That's a free tool that you can. If, yeah. Right. There's a lot of tools out there. So if somebody wanted to, you know, get into it. it it's not difficult that the tools are made available for them. Uh, I think it's another no. another thing to uh, to consider. You know, like I, I think like if I if I'm if I'm out there imaging, my my rig is going and I'm kind of sitting around and not really doing much other than making sure my guiding's working and and uh, uh, for most part it is. So you know, if I right. setting setting up another another rig. Um, allows me to get into in, into this type of observation and, and measurement I think is is something that I, I, I I'm gonna look into and and um, well, I, I can tell you a way to get into it and even you can go back if you've done a lot of imaging for beautiful yeah. pictures there's nothing stops you from going back at those images and looking for for minor plants or asteroids in them oh, and doing right. measurements of the asteroids that are in those images all right you mean of the individual 
of the individual same frames. Image, right. You need to look at the individual frames. Okay. Uh, and then and there's a different technique, or, or I should say there's a different set of data that you need to extract from those images that uh, you can learn about. And uh, uh, on the Minor Planet Center website, uh, they've, they've got great documentation on you get your now there's a there's a process you have to go through at the minor planet center to be able to submit your data to the, the minor planet center which is a part of the uh, international astronomical union they take your that's a that's a fully professional organization that that does the that that's geared towards minor planets completely that they're the gatekeeper of the world for minor planets so they take your data and it directly impacts the orbital calculations for each of the minor planets that you observe. They add your data because minor planets aren't like uh, aren't like stars. Okay. They'll calculate the orbit, but after time, the orbits will drift. the The parameters will change over time because they've got influences by from the major planets, and they've got other influences while they're going around on the sun and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So. You have, to, you have to at least follow up observation and to make sure the orbit is maintained precisely so we keep track of these things. So that's what's different about minor planets than stars or anything else is that we have to keep track. We have to do continuous observations of these objects over time and their, uh, to maintain, right? You need to keep track. Really amazing information. And I know for myself personally, it's something I'm going to, look into and knowing that I have data that I can, I can just go back and I can redo the, I can do measurements from them um, is encouraging. Asteroid right there. Look at that. And then this is, and this is where, so I calculate, so you calculate the position and you go look it up at the minor planet center and say, yep, that's it. I've identified that object. Or maybe you find something new. That's right. Yeah. You can discover things new too. Right. Yeah. That'd be exciting. That'd be really exciting. So one of the, one of the groups I work with is the Mark Slade Remote Observatory, uh, which is uh, affiliated with, um, it's owned by Thoreau Science, which is a nonprofit corporation we formed about a year and a half to run the observatory. We've been, the observatory's been in operation for almost five years now. It's a remotely operated observatory that's about five miles from my house, uh, hosted by uh, Dr. Myron Wasuda, who my partner in this endeavor and uh we do we do training and outreach and research and uh one of the things that we've done over the last three years is develop our exoplanet observing program and we're affiliated with the test follow-up uh group uh nasa mit formed uh, as part of the test part of the charter of that of that mission was to form a ground-based follow-up mission to follow up on the detections that the test satellite did for exoplanets. And uh, because test just identifies targets that are might be, they're not sure, they have to be validated and verified from the ground as part of the team. So we've been, on, we've been doing observations, not so many this year as we did last year, uh, of the test objects of interest is what they're called, TOIs. Okay. Where they've identified these targets, and we have to verify that they're actually exoplanets, or if they're uh, actually 
a lot of them false positives are are eclipsing binaries that you have to weed out. So the difference between uh, a binary star and an exoplanet is the shape of the light curve. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty obvious when you do the measurement, that's how you differentiate the, the two of them is the shape of the light curve. And so that's one of the things we do from the ground is to, to uh, say yay or nay, whether it's an actual exoplanet that's worthy of follow-up work from more expensive telescopes, basically. Uh, okay. So, I'm, so the group we're a member of, this SG-1 group, uh, is like the first cut at determining whether the uh, detected or the target is actually an exoplanet or not. We've been fortunate enough to identify one of the exoplanets in that realm that we verified that it was an exoplanet versus an eclipsing binary. So that was pretty exciting for us to say, yeah, we we, we were the first ones to measure this exoplanet. Wow. One of the first ones. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so I find this really, really exciting, interesting. So, you know, people that are listening right now, um, if, if you're like me, when you're imaging you know, all your data, you've got it archived and cataloged and and set up in a way that you can always go back to it. You might have it broken up by by year or object or year and object. Um, and and uh, that data you have there might actually have um, an exoplanet or an asteroid or uh, another object in it that wasn't already seen that could possibly the discovery right right and i think that's right. really really right. exciting um and and you know for myself i i come i come from a family that's always been in the photography business and not like as photographers but like my father worked at kodak for 30 years and my uncles and i worked there for a little while and my brothers it's, it was like a family business um but the one thing that always struck me about about pictures even like back in the the film days is that that's a moment in time, right? That'll never happen again. Right. Right. So when we're imaging, right. we're, we're capturing that moment in time, right? If it's a five minute exposure, that's right. five minutes we're of time. Yeah. Right. Those photons just go streaming by us and we've frozen them in, an, yeah. in a hard copy, basically. We basically made a fixture that, that saved those photons, basically. Yeah. So we can always go back and we can inspect that, that, that information and, Toronto, the Royal Ontario Museum, and they discovered a whole new dinosaur that was never known before, and it was from from fossils that they had in their archive since the 50s or 60s. So they were sitting there, and somebody went back and looked at it and said, wait a minute, these don't match anything that are known. And they did more work and research to it. They discovered a whole new dinosaur that nobody yeah, cool. had known of, right? So, so you know... Yeah. The opportunities there for anyone listening, right, that you can go back to your data and you can put it through these tools that exist and measure it out and and and, and see if you're picking up an exoplanet or if you're picking up an asteroid um, or if you're picking up, uh, you know, a, a new discovery. And and uh, I think that's really, really cool. Um, right. One thing that uh, one thing, there's a couple things that I always suggest to people is that as much as possible, keep your original raw data. Uh, if it's calibrated, that, that's that's fine. 
but even if you can keep your raw data that with the calibration frames and the and the light frames without yeah. them being calibrated, that'd be great. The other thing is that always strive to make maximum use of your storage by by doing this doing your imaging critically sampled. And what I mean by that is that you don't you don't save full frame DSLR images if your sky doesn't support that. So the you know about sampling and everything. Mm -hmm. So if you, you create these huge files and it eats up your hard drive space, you'll have a tendency to want to say, well, I processed the images. I'm just going to throw away this the source images, you know, and have my process. I don't care too much about. So if you really want to do science with your images, you need to try to make maximum use of your storage space by by setting up your image scale so that you're critically sampled and you're not oversampled in terms of, and what I mean by oversampled is just like when you, when you're visually observing like the moon or Mars and you try to put too much magnification on it, all you do is blow up a big blob, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see more. You just see a bigger version of what you're seeing now. It's not any, any more detailed by any means. Right. That's the same thing you get with imaging if you oversample. You basically make a star, a star that's critically sampled is very, very, once you learn it, it's very easy to see. If you oversample a star, they look blobby. And you know, everybody knows what a blobby star looks like on an image. Right. That's just, that's just what the sky will give you at that time. It's, it's whatever the, you know, most skies give you two arc second, full width at half maximum, maybe, maybe three arc second. Mm -hmm. full width at half max but there's no use in sampling more than twice that so if you so if your image scale is a half to one arc second per uh uh per pixel that's that's typically oversampled then you're gonna get you're you're basically saving so let's say you're twice twice the amount of what the sky will give you you're saving four times the data that you really need to save so you're going to use up your storage space four times as fast as what you would normally have if you were critically sampled. So that's wow. one way to, and that's what I always suggest to people to try to learn that concept about what critically sampling and and don't oversample their their uh, their images. Yeah, well, that's excellent, Jerry. I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, uh, really quickly, you've written a couple of books. You want to tell us what they're called? And yes. I appreciate that. Yeah, so uh, I wrote two books for Springer Books. The first one is called uh, Scientific Astrophotography, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can look under my name. It's under Gerald Hubble, my uh, given name, Gerald Hubble. But if you look up Scientific Astrophotography, uh, you'll find that. And then my second book is called Remote Observatories for Amateur Astronomers. And uh, that came out in two, my first book came out in 2013, the other one in 2015. Um, and I think they're excellent books. Uh, of course, I, I, these are the books that I wanted to have when I first started. I wrote these books basically to document I learned over a four year period, my first book, uh, over a four year period, uh, learning this craft basically, how to do imaging, scientific imaging scientific astrophotography mm -hmm. and uh so i think uh they, they've done well I'm, I'm really happy with the books it's really gratifying for me to talk to people that have used my books and learned learned how to do this it really makes me feel good yeah well i 
I think anyone that's listening who has an interest in scientific astrophotography, uh, um, consider uh, looking up uh, Jerry's book and um, you know learn start learning from there. And you know let, let let's keep the conversation going on the Facebook page, right? If you're already doing some of this type of astrophotography uh, and for uh, scientific measurement, um, even just for yourself for fun. Let us know and, and put it on the on the Facebook page and and uh, tell us about it and share some of your uh, uh, work with us, Jerry. Thank you very much for your time. Um, uh, and you know, I thank I, you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh no, my my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank thank you for uh, for, for for giving us your time and uh, everybody who's listening. Thank you once again uh, for subscribing, and we'll have another episode out very soon. Clear skies, everybody. Thank you.